come see me. Um, it's not a desperate situation, but it would, it would be nice. So um, please be in prayer and looking about that. Well, with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take them and turn with me to Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, as we continue our walkthrough of this letter, beginning a new series as we work our way through the letter. Galatians chapter 4, beginning a new series that I've entitled, Avoiding Gospel Distortion. Avoiding Gospel Distortion. I'll say more about why I've given it that title in just a moment. But Galatians chapter 4, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, we've got some at the back there. Simply just slip up your hands. Joseph can pass you one if you need one. Galatians chapter 4. Given we're having technical difficulties, you might want to have a Bible in front of you just in case. Galatians chapter 4. Our text this morning is going to be verses 8 through 11, but to put this in its context, we're going to read from verses 1 through 11. So Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 11. Give everyone a moment to get there. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And if you're there, I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Galatians chapter 4. beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 11. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I will read the odd-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. So Galatians 4, 1 through 11. God's Word says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. But in the past, since you didn't know God, You were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather, have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Jesus said that these words, his words, would by no means pass away. Let's pray, ask for God's help, and come to his word today. Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would speak to us. In the words of the old hymn, would you enter every trembling heart? Would we know the promise of the Spirit's help? And Father, as we pray for our nation, in our pastoral prayer time, 
we also will take a moment to pray for the churches of our nation. Normally it's our habit to pray for individual local churches in our area, but today we want to take a moment and pray for the churches of our nation. Father, may we be faithful in the commission that you've given us to go into all the world and to make disciples. May Jesus Christ be heralded from coast to coast. May his glory and his reign be proclaimed. May those who are far from you be brought near to you. And Father, even if it be your will, would you send revival to the churches of our nation? May the Spirit burn within us once again. Father, we know that you've given us the Spirit. He dwells within us. But may we be more conscious of our need of him. May we be led by him. And above all, may we labor to make Jesus Christ known. Be with us as we continue in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, as I said, is our text this morning. And as I said, we're beginning a new series as we march our way down through the letter to the Galatians. I've called this series avoiding gospel distortion on the seats near you. There should be a a couple of cards with the titles for the sermons in this series as we work our way through Galatians. If you remember, those of you who've been here from the beginning, Galatians is a regional letter. It's a regional letter written to a group of churches that Paul himself had planted, but now these churches were in danger of abandoning the gospel message that they had heard from Paul. In fact, if you turn back to chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7, Paul says that he is amazed that they were so quickly turning away from him who had called them by the grace of Christ, and he says that they were turning to a different gospel. And Paul's clear to say that not that there is a different gospel, or another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. As you read the letter, controlling theme emerges. There's this reality that starts right at the beginning and works its way all the way through. This reality that there is liberty that has been purchased for us by Christ and applied to us by the Spirit, and yet... There are always subtle temptations to abandon that liberty. There are always subtle temptations to give up that liberty for bondage. Or maybe I should rephrase that. Not so much to give up our liberty for bondage, but to give up true liberty for false liberty. And so the letter to the Galatians is this clarion call for the Galatian Christians, and by extension, all of God's people, to stand firm in their freedom and to reject any addition to the gospel. There were a group of false teachers who were adding to the gospel of grace with a very law-centered message. And as they were adding to the gospel of grace, that changed the message so that it was no longer the gospel of grace, but it was a distortion. It was a distortion. And so that being the case, he writes this letter, and like I said, the aim of this letter is for the people of the churches of Galatia, these churches that Paul himself had planted, the aim is for them to keep their hold 
on the gospel. And so from the beginning, really, of chapter 1, verse 6, up until chapter 4, verse 7 that we looked at last week, Paul has been throwing out argument after argument, argument after argument, trying to get these precious believers not to give up on the gospel. That the gospel is too precious for you to turn your back on it. But as we turn the corner into chapter 4 and verse 8, the tone of this changes. Paul is still dealing with the doctrine that these people were teaching. He's still dealing with the ideas that they were putting forward. But now what you're encountering as you read from Galatians 4, 8 through to 5, 12, which is what we're going to cover in this five-week series, like I said, the tone changes. It gets more personal. It gets more, well, honest. Not that Paul has been dishonest up to this point, but now Paul is speaking from his heart. Whereas up to this point, Paul has been kind of speaking from his mind and from his head. Now Paul gets very heartfelt. He gets very personal with them. And he does this because, and here's the take home for us, in every age, we are going to find that there are people who will try to add and try to distort the gospel of God's grace. So if gospel distortion, if gospel dishonesty, if you will, happens in every age, well, how do we equip ourselves to avoid a distorted, a twisted, a rested gospel message? How is it that we as God's people can protect ourselves against the temptation to distort the gospel? Or more subtly, to think we understand the gospel while holding to a distorted form of it. That's what Paul's going to help us out here with in Galatians. What you're going to find in this five-week series is we're going to encounter five heartfelt pleas from Paul not to accept a distorted gospel. As I said, we're encountering Paul here as he's being his most personal, his most empathetic. And beloved, as we look at these five pleas over the next five weeks, my heart desire is that we would be able to not only spot a distorted gospel, but that we would grow in our love for and our fidelity to the biblical gospel. So I told you there are five heartfelt pleas from 4, 8 to 5, 12. We're going to consider the first of them this morning. And the first of them really forms the title for our sermon, a little hint. The title each week is going to be the plea that we're looking at. So, nice and easy. Title this morning. Plea number one that he gives. Beloved, don't go back under the law. Don't go back under the law. Here's the big idea for this text. As we're looking at it, here's the big idea that Paul makes. That abandoning the gospel of grace for the law, for the Christian, makes no sense. That abandoning the gospel of God's grace for the law, for the Christian, makes no sense. That's my big idea this morning. If you don't remember anything else I said, I hope you remember more of what I said. But if you don't remember anything else I said, remember that. That abandoning the gospel of grace for the law for the Christian, makes no sense. For the remainder of our time this morning, I want to consider three motivations from this text that 
Paul gives us for not abandoning the biblical gospel. Three heartfelt motivations that should keep us from adopting a distorted gospel. Three motivations. First of all, point number one, Paul encourages the Galatians to look back at your life before God's grace. Look back at your life before God's grace. So look at verse, verse 8 with me. Paul says, but in the past, since you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature were not God's. So you remember from the, our last message that Paul talks about the fact that we have become adopted, that we are now sons, and if we are sons, then we are heirs. But what Paul does is he goes from the present and says, guys, look back to where you came from. Look back to that time when you as Galatians did not know God. Like most of the Greco-Roman world, the Galatians were polytheists and idolaters. They worshipped other gods and a lot of them. In fact, that was, the, like I said, it was the case across the Roman world. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 too, and he says that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. To the Thessalonians, he says, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, that you know your own testimony, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, when Paul says that they didn't know God, it's not that they didn't know that there was a God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21 makes it very clear that all human beings know that there is a God. But Paul says, Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. All human beings know instinctively that there is a God of some sort. The issue, as Paul puts it, is not that they didn't know there was a creator, but as Paul says in Romans 1.21, Though they knew God, in other words, they knew that there was a creator, they knew there was a God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. The problem isn't that they don't believe that there's a God, it's that they don't acknowledge him or care. And that's where the Galatians were. No interest in the true God, no understanding of him. They were once godless people, but now they were adopted into God's family. And why is it that Paul feels the need to kind of flip from their present circumstances, God's children, to go back to when they were God's enemies? Why is it that Paul feels the need to go all the way back there? Surely there's a reason for this. I mean, after all, they knew it. So, so why does he feel the need to go down a history lesson, as it were? I put it to you that Paul puts this here. He starts here because, get this, Christians can be prone to forget that they have a past. Uh, Christians can be prone to forget that they have, as I like to say, they have a BC. You know, you know what I mean when I say a BC? Before Christ. <laughs> I, 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 I've been around church long enough to know the type. You know, we, you've met them, the folks who have that kind of air of superiority about them, a sense that if you didn't know any better, you think they were born with a Bible and a hymnal in their hands? That, that feeling, that general attitude of having everything together and never putting a foot wrong? 
you know, the kind of folks who act as almost though they've forgotten, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, that you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the rule of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. They seem to forget that we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. They seem to forget Ephesians 2, 12, that one time they were without Christ, that they were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, that they were foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. They seem to forget that Romans 5, 6 through 11, that they were the ones who at once upon a time were helpless, that they were the ungodly that Christ died for. Romans 5.10, they were enemies of God who needed to be reconciled. Sometimes, I'm going to put myself in this frame too. I can't speak for all of us, but I know me. I can sometimes lose sight of that. Like I said, I can't speak for all of us, but I know I can be unsympathetic towards an unbelieving world at times. I mean, you look at their amoral or immoral ways their hatred for righteousness, the abject stupidity of non-Christians sometimes. You look at all of that, and you're naturally tempted to think, I'm better than them. But in all that, I have to check my own tendency, the tendency towards self-righteousness, towards self-justification to, as it were, kind of subtly pat myself on the back and say, you know, Kofi, you're a good, upstanding Christian. It's easy to think that the longer the the longer we walk with Jesus, the better we are than other people. You know, we're not like those horrible sinners out there. <laughs> but might I suggest this morning to you, just go there with me for a, for a second. Might I suggest that the first step to abandoning the gospel is thinking that you are past the gospel? Might I suggest that true spiritual growth actually begins when we grow both in our thankfulness for God's grace and in our awareness of our ever-present need for it. If we're going to keep a firm hold on the gospel and not go back under a legal mindset, it might do us some good to remember where we came from. And so Paul encourages them to look back at their lives before God's grace. But there's a second motivation for not going back under the law, for not holding onto a distorted gospel. The second motivation comes to us in the beginning of verse 9. Point number two, look back at the sovereign love of God. Look back at the sovereign love of God. So the beginning of verse 9 says, But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God. Let's pause there for a moment. So Paul says that Galatians were those who once upon a time didn't know God. But something had changed. Uh, Paul speaks from two perspectives to describe this new reality. From man's perspective, he says, but now, since you know God. Now we read that and we think, okay, no, I know what the word know means. But remember that Paul is a Jew. And that much of the way that he writes pulls on the Old Testament. When the Old Testament uses this language of knowledge or of knowing, it's way more than just apprehending some facts. It's way more than just, I know some information and some ideas. 
No, when the Bible uses this language of knowing, it carries the idea of personal and intimate knowledge. Timothy George, I've quoted him a few times, his really good commentary on Galatians in our study so far. He puts it really well. He says that to know God in this kind of experiential intensity implies a divine human encounter in which the total self, not merely the mind or thought processes, is claimed and transformed. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a Christian because you have come into a, here's a good word for you, an experiential knowledge of God. You don't just know about Him. You don't just know information about Him. Yes, information is good. Let's be clear. You need to know some information about God. But you don't just know information about Him. If you're a Christian, you know Him. In the person of Jesus, we have come into a relationship with God, the kind of which Jesus talked about in John 17. I think I've quoted it a few times. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. All that is true from the human perspective. We come into a knowledge of God. But Paul doesn't end there, because Paul not only looks at the human perspective, he turns around and then he looks at the divine perspective. So look back with me, Galatians 4, 7. Since you've come to know God, or rather have become known by God. The believer doesn't just know God. The foundation of that knowledge is that we have become known by God. Once again, Paul being a good Jew, he's pulling on the Old Testament and this idea of knowledge on the part of God being much more than just, I know about someone. It speaks to intimacy. In fact, a couple of passages if you're taking notes. Genesis chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. God says, Abraham is to become a great, we read it last week, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have, most of your translations will say, I have chosen him, but it's the word for no. In fact, if you have the King James Version, I believe it says, for I know him. For I have chosen him, so that he will command his children in his house after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing what is right. This is how Yahweh will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, God says, I have known, speaking to the nation of Israel, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Now, does that mean that God didn't know about all the other nations on the planet? Was it that God is saying that, but he had no idea who all these other peoples were? Well, no, God's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows all things, actual and potential. (laughs) No, when God says that I have known only you, he's basically saying, I have had an intimate relationship only with you. This is a sovereign, selective love from God towards those who don't deserve his goodness. And and, and when we cross the covenantal divide over into the New Testament, this language of God's knowledge comes up again. It just comes up in a different form. So Romans 8, we all love Romans 8, 28, don't we? We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We all love that verse, and rightly we should. But I've often said that for everybody who loves Romans 8, I can give you two or three people who haven't read 29 and 30. 
Why is it that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are literally the called according to his purpose? Well, verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 1 Peter 1, as Peter's launching his first letter, verses 1 and 2, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge. Oh, here's this language of God's knowledge again. The foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Our fathers in the faith refer to this as the purpose of God. They said that it was God's plan, God's purpose to choose a people to set his love upon and to own them by name. Our church is confessional. We hold to the New Hampshire Confession. Chapter 9 of that confession talks about this doctrine. The doctrine of election says this. Funny enough, they didn't call it in the confession the doctrine of election. They call it God's purpose of grace. And then they said this, quote, we believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners, that being perfectly consistent with the free agency of man, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end, that it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable, that it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy, that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree, that it may be ascertained by its effects in all who believe the gospel, that it is the foundation of Christian assurance, and that to ascertain it with regard to ourselves demands and deserves the utmost diligence. Typically, when we start talking about this doctrine of election, Christians will take this beautiful Bible doctrine and turn it into a battlefield to war with one another. Now, while I'm not opposed to vigorous theological discussion, can I put it to you that that's not how the Bible talks about this doctrine? Real quick, real quick. When you read the Bible, the Bible gives you really three perspectives to look at this doctrine for. Well, we just read Romans 8. First of all, it's a comfort for God's people. The fact that God chooses the people isn't supposed to terrify them. It's supposed to comfort them. The reason why, like I said, the reason why we can know that all things work for good is precisely because God has chosen the people. Not only is it a comfort for God's people, it's a reason for praise. If you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 4. Paul says, we always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's a comfort for God's people. It's a reason for praise. It's an encouragement to our evangelism, thirdly. One of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts is Acts 18, where Paul goes to Corinth for the first time. You know, he has some success. He has quite a bit of opposition. And you kind of get the sense in the narrative that Paul's kind of worried. He's like, I don't know if I need to be here. Like, I need to leave. But Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, Jesus appears to him. The Lord appeared to Paul in a night vision. Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. And don't be silent. Keep pre preaching the gospel. You got this, Paul. You'll be all right. Why? Verse 10, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in 
this city. The fact that God had people in that city who needed to hear the gospel, that he had chosen and they needed to now come into the fold, that was supposed to give Paul confidence. You stay right where you are and you keep preaching. I've got this. God's electing love ought to make us think twice about any kind of legalism. I mean, think about this for a moment. If salvation is a sovereign work of God, why would we submit to any system that says our works had anything to do with it? Beloved, salvation is the outflow of God's love and concern for his people. Salvation is not payment for spiritual services rendered. And when you're tempted to forget that salvation is God's love gift to us in his son, when when that temptation arises, I think it might be good for some of us to go back to that reality. That God loves us not because we did anything, but precisely because of his own initiative. Now, I want to be intellectually honest. The minute you start talking about this doctrine, people start to get worried. Because people, again, I've been teaching the Bible for a while now. People usually will come up to me and say, okay, but Kofi, if that's true, where's the security in that? If that's true, how can I know that I'm chosen? Question I get all the time. How do I know I'm one of the elect? Can I put it to you that that's asking entirely the wrong question? Might I suggest that you're looking at it upside down and back to front. You're looking at it entirely wrong way. Years ago when I was learning all of this about God's election and the sovereignty of God and salvation for the first time, I had all of these pie-in-the-sky, hyper-speculative questions. Thankfully, the person who was teaching me did a really good job of saying, you know what, you're asking all the wrong questions. Go read this. I'm sorry we don't have the screens up. There was a quote. I'm going to read it. It's a long one. In fact, I'll probably just send it in the email this week. John Calvin. I think we can agree he knew something about this doctrine. You know how Calvin answers the question of how do we know you're elect? Let me read it to you. He said, quote, First, if we seek God's fatherly mercy and kindly heart, we should turn our eyes to Christ. Again, we don't plan the songs here, but I'm glad we sang Turn Your Eyes um, Upon Jesus. Turn our eyes to Christ, on whom alone God's spirit rests. If we seek salvation, life, and the immortality of the heavenly kingdom, then there is no other to whom we may flee, seeing that he alone is the fountain of life, the anchor of salvation, and the heir of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the purpose of election but that we, adopted as sons by our heavenly Father, may obtain salvation and immortality by his favor? No matter how you toss it about and mull it over, you will discover that its final bounds extend no farther. Accordingly, those whom God has adopted as his sons are said to be chosen not in themselves, but in his Christ. For unless he could love them in him, he could not honor them with the inheritance of his kingdom if they had not previously become partakers of him. But if we have chosen him, we shall find, we shall not find, excuse me, assurance of our election in ourselves. And not even in God the Father, if we conceive him severed from his son. Here's the quote that blew my mind as a teenager. Christ then is the mirror wherein we must and without self-deception may contemplate our own election. How do I know I'm elect? Here's a simple answer. Do you believe in Jesus? 
Well, yes, I do. Congratulations, you're one of the elect. <laughs> Calvin goes on, for since it is into his body the Father has destined those to be engrafted whom he brought from eternity to be his own, that he may hold as sons all whom he acknowledges to be among his members, we have a sufficiently clear and firm testimony that we have been inscribed in the book of life if we are in communion with Christ, end quote. So ultimately, the question, am I elect? Wrong question. The real question is, has Christ called me to come? That's a good question. In fact, I'll go on and say, actually, has Christ called and then made me his? Am I walking in day-by-day -day rest and dependence on him? If the answer is yes, if Christ called and you answered, you're his, so rejoice. And that should put any thought out of our minds entirely of going back under any sort of system of law. So Paul says that we are to look back at life before God's grace. We are to look back at the sovereign love of God. Oh, by the way, by the way, if you still have questions about this doctrine, on the back of today's um, study guide, as every week, I put some application questions there. And there's also a bunch of resources. I would highly recommend you pick up some of those resources because they will help you to think more clearly and more biblically about this subject than we have time for. So just in case, I point you to those. But for now, Paul says we're to look back at life before God's grace. We are to look back at the sovereign love of God. Final motivation this morning. Number three, we're to look at what life is like under the law. Look at life under the law, verses 9 through 11. The final motivation that Paul presents to us is pretty straightforward. Since you've come to know God because God has known you, if all that is true, then you need to look at what life under the law looks like and compare it to life under the love and the grace of God. So look at verse 9 with me. He says, but now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? How can you, the beneficiaries of God's grace, the recipients of God's love, the objects of God's kindness, how can you go back to what Paul calls the weak and worthless elements? Now, as we're reading this, did anybody get confused for a moment? If you were confused, may I say I'm so proud of you for listening. If you weren't confused, allow me to do something that typically teachers are not supposed to do. Allow me to introduce some confusion for a moment. I promise I'll clear it up. But allow me to confuse you for just a moment. Paul just said, verse 9, that they had come to know God and they were known by God. Verse 8, he tells us that they were previously idolaters. But he says, well, why are you turning back to weak and worthless elements? Hold on. If the weak and worthless elements are talking about idolatry, and they're no longer idolaters, they've turned from idols to serve the living and true God, what does Paul mean by turn back? How can they be known by God? And yet, if we read it, it seems as though Paul is saying you're going back to your idolatry. Do you pick up the confusion now? Well, 
I don't think Paul's being confusing at all. I think Paul is making a very profound point that you might just miss. Here's the link. Paul's making the point that whether it's Jewish legalism or pagan idolatry, all man-made religion shares the same root problem. You're right with God based on your performance. Listen to how one Bible teacher puts it, William Hendrickson. He said, quote, Formerly, they had been enslaved by the childish teachings of pagan priests and ritualists. They had been taught to obey all kinds of prescriptions regarding the discovery of the will of the gods by means of omens, the benefit of afflicting the body, and of submission to fate. They had been moral stipulations derived from nature, custom, and arbitrary will. Having been delivered from all this folly, do they now wish to become enslaved all over again, this time by Jewish regulations? Paul calls these rudiments weak and beggarly, our translation says weak and worthless because they have no power to help man in any way. For those of you who've been on this journey through the Lessons of Galatians with me from the beginning, you know that Paul has been at pains to make it clear that the message of these false teachers, the Judaizers, this message that in addition to Jesus, you need to submit to the law of Moses, that this message is dangerous. Here's one more reason it's dangerous. It's trading the message of goodness and grace and glory in the person of Christ. It's trading all of that for the regulations and rules that Paul says are weak and worthless. One of my preaching heroes, Dr. John MacArthur, he has said multiple times over the years that there are only two religions in the world. That of all the religions that are there, really, you can just boil it down to two. There is the religion on one side of human achievement. You do something, you receive. And then there's biblical Christianity, which is the religion of divine accomplishment. Religion is either man-centered or God-centered. It either focuses on the glory, on the beauty, on the majesty of our triune God as he's revealed himself in Jesus. Or it focuses on what we can do, what we can earn, what we can achieve. And here's the thing about that. Even Christians can fall prone to what the Puritans used to call a legal spirit. They can fall prone to believing that our relationship with God is more about what we do and don't do. Now, hear me, hear me, hear me. There are moral and ethical implications to being a Christian. A new heart has new desires. And those new desires, of course, will work themselves out in, good de- in new and good deeds. Imperfect, bumbling to be sure, but good deeds nonetheless. But a couple of times in our study of Galatians, I've made this point, and I'll make it again this morning. Good works are the evidence of true faith in Christ. But they're not the ground of our standing in Christ. First and foremost, true Christianity is a receiving, it's a resting in, it's a trusting in Christ. We use the term legalism kind of loosely, in my opinion. Some of you know I'm not really a big fan of the term. But true legalism is what happens when we lose sight of Christ and we're captivated by our own ability to achieve. So, no, yeah, Jesus is there. He's kind of in the background. But in the foreground is my ability to put in work. It's my ability to achieve. And Paul says that when that happens... That's returning to bondage. That's returning to slavery. 
especially in circles where we are, we are conservative and evangelical and reformed, if you like to use that label or not, at times we can fall prone to the idea, I know I've fallen prone to it over the years, that the more rules we have, the more holy we are. The more things we put in place, the greater the level of holiness. Now, let's be clear. God uses means. And so, actually, some of the means that we put in place are definitely necessary, and they're helpful to us in the pursuit of holiness. But listen to Paul in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, almost done. Colossians chapter 2, and verses 22-23. Paul says, But if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to, here's this word again, regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, Paul says they are of no value in curbing self-indulgence. It doesn't surprise me when you hear these ridiculous stories of Christians in really fundamentalist, if you like to use that label, I'm not a big fan, but in really strict forms of Christianity, and then you start to hear, there was abuse in these circles. There was this kind of sin. There was authoritarian leaders. There were leaders who were profiting themselves using God's name. What on earth happened? They seem to be so holy. I look at that nowadays, and I'm like, well, what did you expect? If you present Christianity primarily as a religion of works, well, guess what? People will think I'm good because I do the stuff, but hearts have not been transformed. Beloved, Christianity is about spirit-empowered, Christ-centered freedom. If I can be personal for just a moment, you know, as a pastoral candidate for our church, uh, you, you might gather I'm a little worked up about this. I seem to mention it every week. I feel the need to mention it because the reality is we all forget. <laughs> and as churches, I especially get worried at times because it's very easy for us to forget our mission. Oh, how distracted we are as a generation. How easy, us, how easy it is for us to get rabid about everything else but the main thing. Beloved, I fear that if we don't act intentionally in keeping the gospel front and center, we, and I'm talking about Redeemer Bible, we can turn the glorious freedom of the gospel into gloomy finger-pointing. Perhaps we would do well to remember and to constantly remind ourselves that Christianity is about Christ, His life, His death, His glorious achievement, and not yours. I've got to get back to our text, haven't I? Um, verse 10. Paul hones in on one area where the bondage and slavery of the Judaizers was most evident. Verse 10, he says, you are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. Apparently, the Galatians had taken up the habit of observing the special feast days, new moons, Sabbaths, and other holy days of Judaism. Now, the days themselves weren't the problem. Those of you who were here a while ago when we did Romans 14 and 15, remember what Paul said? It's like one person keeps one day more holy than another. One person thinks every day is the same. You know what? Be convinced in your own mind. The day itself isn't the issue. But when special spiritual significance is attached and enforced to those days, now we've got a problem. 
much like the Judaizers project as a whole, going back to these special days wasn't going forward in God's plan of redemption. It was going backwards. It was going from fulfillment back to promise. It was going from shadows. It was going back to shadows, excuse me, after embracing the substance. If that language sounds familiar, because that's exactly what Paul says about stuff like the Sabbath. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. No wonder Paul could say, verse 11, I'm fearful for you. I'm concerned. I'm worried that perhaps, verse 11, my labor for you has been wasted. Paul wonders. He's astonished at how people who heard the gospel directly from him could be so clueless. As I was putting this together this week, I read a commentary. Commentaries aren't usually the most devotional reading. But this particular commentary I found so helpful. He asked some pretty probing questions and I had to think about them. I'm going to read these three questions and just leave them with you to think about this week. This commentator is called Walter Hansen. He, he said this, quote, Are we as grieved as Paul when our churches begin to put the observance of the law at the center of their life and worship? Are we so troubled when Christians put more emphasis on keeping certain traditions than on growing in their relationship with the Father through Christ and the power of the Spirit? Does our lack of concern for Christians who have become law-centered rather than Christ-centered indicate that we do not even recognize that a change has taken place or understand how destructive a shift of focus can be. Love it, I'm done. But I leave you with this thought. Isn't it all too easy to assume that because we're doing the stuff that everything's okay? Isn't it all too easy for us to assume that because, hey, I go to church, I go to a Bible teaching church, everything's fine. I read my Bible every day. You know, us in our reform circle, we love books. I read books all the time. I listen to, the, I listen to this podcast and this podcast and this podcast. I listen to this one twice even. Like, I'm good. Isn't it easy for us to think that everything is okay when in reality, the slow drift has already started. For the Galatians, the drift was a little less slow. They were a little ways down the way. But thankfully, we have their example to be able to look back at and say, okay, how, if I see the slow drift happening in me or in our church, how do we arrest that? And that's going to be my hope in this sermon series, that as we see these heartfelt pleas from Paul, we would, praise God, I think we're not there. I look at our church, I'm really thankful for all that God is doing. I don't think we're there. But I'm a pessimist, so I, and I naturally think things tend to go worse than better. And so, I like to be prepared. And I think you should be prepared too. My hope is that as we go through this series and we see Paul's heartfelt appeals to these Christians, that we would prepare ourselves so that in the event that the drift happens, we're not caught off guard, but we know how to find our way back.
And Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we do indeed know the way back because of your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the insight and the wisdom you gave him as he wrote, inspired by your spirit. Father, help us that we would not return back to a legal spirit, to a spirit of bondage, but that we would walk in the freedom that your son purchased for us on the cross. And Father, I pray for anybody here who maybe doesn't know that work. That sure you've heard about it, but you've not truly heard him. Father, I pray that your spirit would be using even these feeble words to awaken a consciousness, a need for Christ. And that they would come all the way home in saving faith. Be with us as we conclude this service of worship. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen, beloved, would you stand with me as we conclude?